we tend to give credit to the number one person. And my experience in all the years in sport, even at an Olympic level, is that the people most worthy of the respect aren't necessarily the ones who win gold. The person who will never win, has never had the chance to win, but dedicates themselves, puts themselves out there, that's worthy of a lot of respect, perhaps more respect knowing that you put in the effort and the time, knowing you will never be number one. There's something to be said for that. Find what you love to do. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. This interview with Duff Gibson is a unique listener opportunity to go inside the head and heart of a former world-class athlete and coach who is passionate about sport, competition, and fun. In 2006, Duff did the nearly impossible in the last race of his career by winning gold in the Torino Olympics in the sport of skeleton, a high-velocity, head-first adrenaline rush down an ice track on top of a tiny sled. And yet this was not the most impactful sport-related moment of his life. Duff takes us inside his mind to understand his race day and training philosophies, guides us through the technical aspects of skeleton, including the physics of steering, and vividly demonstrates the virtue of body awareness. Today, Duff is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Tao of Sports, in which he expertly illustrates many sports philosophies such as nurture versus nature, a positive mindset, passion of pursuit, and the value of fun in youth sport. The book inspired me to seek closure by writing a letter to my first coach, whose death many years ago only became known to me relatively recently. Sport is not the only ground on which we tread in this episode. We also discuss lessons from fatherhood, and in particular, the road to and since adoption. And that road winds us back into sport, more specifically into the realm of youth sport and dark horse athletic, the organization Duff founded to promote fun, physical literacy, and growth mindset in kids through sport. Duff is a powerful man with a heart that matches his Olympic medal. His real heroism stems not from his competitive feats, but instead from his humbleness, generosity, and passion. Settle in for a ride with this true champion. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with Duff Gibson. Duff, welcome to Salish Wolf. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. I have also, and I appreciate all of the conversations we've had over the last month or so, and I've enjoyed getting to know you a bit, and I enjoy getting to know you even more now and sharing that with some of our listeners. Well, I appreciate that very much. I appreciate uh, maybe for your listeners, they wouldn't know, and you probably wouldn't say it, so I'll, I'll say it. 
Um, some of your, I listened to a few of your previous uh, podcasts. I listened to Bruce Kirkby's and you were talking about his book and he connected the two of us. And I said, would you like to read the book that I am 90 some odd percent done just to get a better sense of, you know, maybe what I'm about or where I'm coming from, at least in relating to the topic of sport. And you've been very kind to have read through the whole thing and have offered me a little bit of feedback. And that's been very valuable. So now that I've, we've spoken on the phone once or twice, but to see your face here on the Zoom call, I can tell you sort of face-to-face how much I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that as well. Thank you for the acknowledgement. And I definitely enjoyed reading it and and discussing it with you. And I look forward to when that finished product comes out for the world to be able to read it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. You've been an elite athlete in many sports most of your life, I guess. And in 2006, you reached the zenith by winning a gold medal at the Olympics in the skeleton. I'm curious, despite that level of achievement, what is the most impactful moment or experience that you've ever had in sport? Uh, impactful to myself? Maybe? Yes, yes. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell. I think we, I've, we've mentioned that before, yes. but he talked about a higher, uh, a higher level of awareness or, or per, not performance isn't the wrong word. Cause that's performance is the wrong word because that's associated more with, um, with sport very often associated with sport. And, and I can't remember a higher level of being a higher sense of awareness or, um, but he referred to sport as being his higher moment or his highest moment of impact. And, and for me, that wasn't necessarily, I had two skeleton races that were one of which was the Olympics in Torino. And one was the world championships two years prior to that, where I got about as close to perfect that perhaps that you can get, I don't know. We always say there's no such thing as perfect in the sliding sports. You could have always been a few inches closer or later going in or out of a corner or what have you. But I had two races in my career that were pretty close to that. In terms of a higher level of achievement, and I have no idea, now that I'm saying this, I have no idea if this is where you intended your question to lead me, but I had, I competed in rowing. That was the I guess the second, if you include wrestling in high school, I thought I'm going to go to the Olympics in wrestling. But rowing, I was at a level where potentially I could have made a national team. And we went twice to the Dadvale Regatta, which is a famous, huge regatta in Philadelphia. And we qualified, my university, Western, we qualified for the final. Um, There were two semifinals and top three in one in each semifinal made it to the final. And the slowest qualifying time for the final was within a second of the fastest qualifying time of the six boats that made the final and i had a moment in the final where we were just pushing so hard we saw it as a possibility to win we didn't win we didn't win a medal but it was such a close race and i that's the only time in my life where i had and maybe as an an endurance athlete you can relate to this because that once i stopped rowing i was i was realized I was more suited to be a power athlete, but my zenith of 
aerobic sport was the final of that race in in Dad Vale so many years ago, 88 or something like that, where I started to black out close to the finish line. Or I didn't, like I had a narrowing of my vision as, you know, you've, you've ever done that where you've blacked out. I don't know, you're for whatever, you get up too quickly and your vision sort of, uh, yeah. blacks out from the outside in I started to get that in an athletic contest in, in because of no reason other than how fast how hard I was pushing myself that that would have been the ultimate for me that I've never achieved since or experienced since and what sort of revelation did that leave you with my exp I think like I'm curious to hear what aerobic athletes would would react to that or what, what your comment might be to that. But I, from, you know, prior to that. And since then I've never competed in, in any kind of sports where the demands would impose that kind of stress on the body. So I never, I never experienced anything like that, but it's the only time that's the one time in my life where I can see that I have pushed my body to that extent. Now in the book, I mentioned how, when I was a kid, I was running a cross country race. I was in grade five. It was our elementary school. So it included grade six. And I was sitting in fourth and my dad yelled at me to go. And I had this, you know, I challenged and ended up coming second. And that was the first time where I realized when I thought I was pushing myself really, really hard, I wasn't necessarily pushing myself as hard as I could have, but uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I just find that a really interesting because the psychology of it, the mental side of it is what's really interesting to me now that I'm retired from competitive sport, oddly enough. That's what's most interesting to me. But I, you know, I competed largely. I mean, what I'm suited for and what ultimately I had international success in is a power sport where you have to walk the line between doing too much and risking an injury next time. It's more about the recovery than the training. And, uh, you know, it's, it's less painful, admittedly, but how you push the body is a completely different thing in a power sport as, as compared to a, an aerobic sport. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Having myself never been a power athlete and I'm quite far away from anything that would be considered a power athlete, all of my activities have always been endurance. And so when you talk about pushing yourself to that point of, nearly blacking out or tunnel vision or when the world just kind of disappears. It's definitely something I can relate with on a pretty regular basis in the past as an, a long distance runner, because it's just something that every time I would go out there, I would, and that could also be in training. It would basically tax the body and the mind, it would tax my body and mind to the absolute limit. Of course, in retrospect, I can I can look back on many races and think, oh, if I just had pushed it a little bit harder, I'm sure I had something in there. But I doubt on many occasions that I actually did have anything extra in there. And I've never actually considered that perspective from the powerlifting component because, as you said, you're you're not pushing your body to that degree of endurance, but you're pushing it to such a degree of physical performance that the stakes are incredibly high. The risk of injury is probably higher in the power sports than in the endurance sports. Would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah I, I would. It, it's, but it's interesting. And it's funny because, and I'm, I'm 
I find that when what you were just saying, I find myself sitting here going, well, there's three different directions I could go with that because I, this is interesting stuff. And I, and what first goes through my head is it's, it's been over romanticized. I think that the most elite endurance athlete is that way because they're willing to suffer more than anyone else. But the reality is that if you go over your anaerobic threshold, it's a limited time offer. So if you're a, a triathlete or a marathon runner, you're walking a very fine line. And if that line was, you know, you are dealing with pain. There's no, there's no getting around that. But if you are, you know, two heartbeats per minute, faster than where you are, then you fail miserably. And I don't care how tough you are, it doesn't work. So it's about walking a line. And it's, you know, I look at, you know, ultimate fighting championship. I used to wrestle when I was in high school. So I'm sort of interested in that aspect to it. And you, you promote, you know, if you're promoting a fight, and you show the person training, it's, it appears like the person would be training at the highest possible intensity for seven hours every day. But that's just not humanly possible. And so where does the reality and the romanticized version of it meet is something that's interesting, I think. Yeah, and you write a lot in your book about the preparation and the mental state, the mindset for a competition. And in power sports where you're competing for maybe 10 seconds or two minutes, that mindset I think is so much more important than it is in an endurance sport. Because for an endurance athlete, we might have 10 or 20 or 30 minutes or two hours to get our shit together, right? It's, <laughs> it's possible to have a lapse or 10 lapses or minutes and minutes of laps and not blow the whole thing. There's a chance to regroup. And you, you write in your book about one of my friends, Simon Whitfield, and in the Beijing Olympics when he regrouped and the very final 600 meter sprint and you could see him dial in exactly where he was and what he was capable of doing and then do it and that's something that he had that opportunity over many 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 miles to sort himself out and to get ready for that final push and maybe it happened spontaneously maybe it was just like oh shit i've got to do this now or i'm not going to do it but as a power athlete you don't have that sort of choice if you're sleeping on the skeleton during the first half of a run, your run's over or you're injured. Yeah, I think I equate it a lot to downhill skiing because I think it's probably slightly more relatable to the average person than skeleton or bobsleigh or luge. Right. Uh, in downhill skiing, and there was, and I refer to this in the, in the book, there was an old TSN program called The Reporters. And this was, and I don't maybe it's still on even, but the back then, this was before the Vancouver Olympics, and the one guy who had never, as far as I know, competed in anything, but at least as a reporter, he reported on professional sport much more than the Olympics. And he was very critical of skier Eric Gay, who now that he's retired, has won the, uh, you know a, a world championship gold medal on two occasions. So like absolute credibility. And he was saying to Eric Gay had said, no more metal predictions, please, because they just add to the pressure. It's already a pressure cooker. And this guy said, you got to deal with the pressure or get out. And I thought there is a guy who has no appreciation for what 
an Olympian in general. Now there's hockey in the Olympics and there's other sports that are not structured the same way. Uh, cross country, you know, the, the cross country ski events would be very similar to a travel in terms of the, the demands and, you know, and pacing and all this sort of things. But the skiing, certainly bobsleigh and skeleton, it's like if your skis go too much sideways, so you're now scraping instead of carving, then you can come back in four years if you're still at that level. That's, you have one chance. The winner that day, someone who wins a skiing race was basically perfect that day and had to, you know, reap the benefits of the correct environmental conditions because it's an outdoor sport and it may start snowing or raining or getting too cold or too hot at any given moment. So it's, it's already a crapshoot. And I, I find that very frustrating that people don't, don't appreciate that fact that, you know, for something like a, a triathlon would be relatively consistent in terms of whoever wins that day, if you had the race next week and the week after that, it would be of the same five people maybe who could have won that race. It's, it's fairly consistent. I mean, you peak for a race and this, and there are other things, you know, people get sick. There's, that sort of thing is involved, of course, but it's a relatively stable thing. Something like skeleton, something like uh, uh, downhill skiing. There are probably 10 people who could win, especially in the downhill events where it's just one shot. There are probably 10 different people who could have won gold that day, let alone a medal. So it really is a crapshoot. It's a different mindset. I would say the mindset has to be of, you know, utmost importance, utmost, uh, you know, on your list of things that are very important. It's very important for us for, uh, you know, less, perhaps less so when you, as you say, you have, you know, two hours potentially to get your shit together where you have to be in the right mind space. And that event that you're referring to with Simon, uh, which is Beijing, I think. Yeah. That one sticks in my mind so much because no one would intentionally be 20 meters behind the leaders. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's less effort to just draft in behind right with them and just use as little energy as possible. Whereas he, he was in a position where he had to make up that huge gap. Now, maybe it was only 20 meters, maybe it was 30 meters, but it was, it was something that he had to overcome that you wouldn't intentionally do that. That's why that one sticks with me so much because it was so clearly a setup that you wouldn't plan and yet he was able to overcome it. I, that one was a big one for me. And I've talked to many people who were Olympians, not, uh, Ron McLean read my book and he said that was a big one for him. Erica Weeb uh, is someone, a wrestler, someone that I know. Uh, and she said that one is, uh, was a big one for her also. So, Well, you set that up in your book, I think, by saying your two most memorable Olympic moments. And as soon as I read that, that came to my mind. And I thought, oh, I bet you that's going to be in here about Simon. And sure enough, that was that was the second one that you listed. And also for me, yeah, that was a phenomenal race to watch and just that final final surge by Simon it's it gives me goosebumps to think about it yeah yeah it didn't help the commentator was saying he's got to make his move now or it's just not going to happen he said that like five times I think you know for like <laughs> the last 20 minutes of the race it's like he's got to bridge that gap or it's over and it's and I believed him so that that helped <laughs> that helped make it stick in my mind 
And when you talk about the power sports and let's stick with skeleton in particular, how much does or does fear have any factor in your performance when you're out there racing? Because as an endurance athlete, I'm never scared for my life. I'm never scared that I'm going to rip an arm off. Does that happen when you're out there competing or, or training for that matter? I would, I, I can't speak for everyone, obviously. And I would say in, well, obviously I was of the field. I would have been one of the more proficient participants, but I, for myself, by the time the race came around, you were mentally set so that fear was not a factor. But there have been many times, I would say there were, I can think of one time in my career where something happened and I didn't know what went wrong. And that's a very unnerving state. I, d I wasn't exactly sure if I was going up or down. A couple of the big turns, there's a, there's, there are two German tracks that have a 360, a full 360 degree turn. So the, the track comes in low, it does a full circle and then leaves either under or over the track that it just entered the circle with. And so that's a long time to be under the G-force. And on those two German tracks in particular, there are times when you the G-forces take you right up almost to the roof and then you come right down almost to the bottom of the corner and get sucked right up. And that's what everybody does. And how you negotiate that is slow your descent and slow your ascent to sort of flatten it out so that you have, you can execute a game plan at the exit, which is where you're going to hit a wall if you don't figure it out. And I can think of only one occasion where I didn't know what happened. And that's unnerving for obvious reasons. You don't know how to fix it if you don't know exactly what happened. But beyond that, in general, I would say there were I didn't have a huge number of bad crashes in my career, but I saw a few. Um, one of those German tracks, the first time I was there, three people were taking away, taken away in an ambulance before it was my turn to go for the first time. And so I would like to say I handled the fear very well. Um, I usually say that it wasn't, you weren't necessarily afraid at the top, but the course had your complete and undivided attention. That's how mm -hmm. I frame it so that it's you're not you're in the right state i mean i talk a lot in the book about visualization visualization is not for us just about imagining the order of the corners it's also about putting the body and the muscles in the correct and an optimal physical state because your muscles are actually a shock absorber when you're actually sliding so if you're very stiff you're a poor shock absorber and you don't go as fast. That's, there's just a relationship between that. And uh, so your physical muscular tension level dictates how fast you slide. So when we visualize, we're also practicing being in that best state. And when you visualize, you don't visualize a crash. You visualize that it goes perfectly well. And you, you know, I visualized a little bit. Sometimes there were certain corners, like in Torino, there's one corner that was very difficult not to go a little bit late into. So I visualized going into that corner the way I wanted to and what I would do if I was not exactly going into it the best way I hoped to, because if that happened, and it was very possible that that would happen, I wanted to handle it like it wasn't a big deal. 
like I would if that happened in my home track that I've done 2000 times. So we have strategies for dealing with it, but fear in general is something that it's not unheard of, but it's something that typically you handle earlier on. Right. And does that handling it earlier on come in when you're doing training? Is fear existent sometime in training runs? I'm a, I'm a downhill skier. I've been my whole life. I used to race a bit when I was younger. And if I'm flying down the mountain, part of me is thinking, yeah, if I lose a ski or if something happens here, this could be ugly. And yet I continue to do it, but I do hold back probably a bit. And I'm just wondering in in any of the training, are you feeling like, oh, this is this is some scary shit? Yeah, yes, yes, and no. It, it like people have passed away downhill skiing, and yes. there have been one accident I can think of uh, in a bobsleigh, but skeleton, believe it or not, and people are regularly assume never, you know, maybe they've watched it on television, but assume that oh, that's the craziest. Well, skeleton is actually the least dangerous from a crash perspective. And the, the tracks are all computer designed and all these testing models and so on. So it's not really possible to do huge damage on a skeleton. As it was described to me many years ago when I was first learning, if you, this is, this is what a, an old bobsledder said to me. If you had a brain fart and just steered in the exact wrong direction, the opposite direction. If you had a left-hand turn and you steered right in a bobsled, you could theoretically launch yourself out of the track and kill yourself. Uh, in skeleton, if you did that, you would skid the sled. You might hit, uh, like there's a, a wood roof to a corner. You might scrape the roof, but you, it's very, you're not going to launch out of the track. It's not like, old black and white videos or from St. Moritz from years and years ago. It's their computer design now. That sort of thing can't happen. You can bang the crap out of your shoulders. You, we've had in skeleton a lot of concussion issues, which isn't necessarily smashing your head, but the vibration of the ice being at high G-force. That's been the problem for skeleton. But in terms of an injury, it's much less so. Uh, it's not really a, it's not as much a consideration. I know the example I often use is I know three former members now of Canada's aerial ski team. Uh, one had broken her back. One had broken a vertebrae in his neck. So two out of the three of the best of the best, like the Canadian team would be one of the best in the world, had a broken back or neck doing that, doing that sport. And I haven't broken a limb. I, you know, I still need to strengthen and, and loosen up my neck every once in a while, but I really am unscathed from my whole career in skeleton. So it's hmm. not as, that's just in relation to, are you scared? Well, I, we never really had the worst, probably the worst crash I ever had was, uh, it was an Omega series, meaning it was a long left, 180 right, a long left. So it's shaped like the, um, uh, is that a Greek letter Omega? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so going from the long 180 to the right, I assumed that I was in one place and I wasn't. And I basically fell off that curve super, super late so that I landed on my back 
in G-force on the other curve. That was the worst, like, and it knocked the wind out of me. And it was a surprise because I, th I thought I would come down out of that curve and then enter the, enter the next left-hand turn. And what happened was I was still on the left curve, the left, sorry, on the right-hand curve when the whole curve ended and I just flew through the air and landed on my back in the next curve. That was, that was one of those moments where I didn't know what I had done um, and it wasn't pleasant, but that's about as bad as it ever did. And that was several years, you know, I probably went the last two years of my career with, you know, the odd elbow scrape, but that was about it. So fear ceased to be an issue, you know, once I had been doing it for a while. Yeah. You're book is you bring Taoism and Taoist philosophy kind of into your approach to sport. And one of the areas which you just mentioned a few minutes ago is about body awareness. And you talk about that in your book. And you also talk about the importance of kind of, I'll use the term awareness, mindfulness, intuition even, and how often athletes will get too wrapped up in the technology that is now available to critique their performances through cameras and coaches and whatever else is available. And you always like to teach kind of the old school way of attuning to the body and what the body is feeling. Can you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, it, it's um, sort of the reason I came to Calgary originally was to get my master's degree in kinesiology and work under Dr. David Smith, who is the guru retired now but still has his hand in uh you know the human performance lab at the university of calgary and long since i had re retired in the last just in the last couple of years he asked if we could meet and he brought a grad student and they were talking about measuring creating a force platform for a sked uh, for a skeleton sled so you could measure how hard you were pushing with each shoulder and this sort of thing and ultimately they scrapped the whole idea because there is no there is no way of doing it without feeling it and so how hard someone pushes with the shoulder is entirely dependent upon the three moves the three steers and pressure changes that you executed before you get to that point it's you have to do it by feel the i mentioned just a moment ago that uh, relaxing and being, uh, like literally what I, the terminology I always said was be a dead body lying on a sled. Uh, you have to keep your elbows in. You have to maintain a, a sense of aerodynamic posture, but to be the best shock absorber, you just need to be a slug lying there dead on the sled. Um, that's that also so that that has benefits in terms of you being a shock absorber which makes you go faster that also has a benefit in terms of you sensing changes in the track so someone who's new to skeleton will go in a corner and they will turn their head to look at the exit so that they can time when they're going to steer out of the corner the top people have just lie there relaxed with their head down because as the radius and this is i'm i apologize for i worry that this is a little bit too technical for some of your listeners but a radius of a corner isn't perfectly uniform all the way through and so if the radius tightens slightly 
that means the g-force in the corner increases. And typically that results in the sled rising up slightly. If you can feel that, then you know exactly where you are because you're feeling something that is a reflection of the geometry of the corner. If you're, so that's the difference between the two. If I'm totally relaxed, I'm a better shock absorber and I'm going faster. And if I'm totally relaxed, I feel the sled rise or fall, which tells me exactly where I am in the corner. And I can dictate my steering based on that, maintaining a completely relaxed and aerodynamic and fast shock absorbing position. If I can't feel that, if I'm too tense, then I rely on vision. And not only am I a poor shock absorber, but now I'm turning to look at the exit of the corner, which is applying force on one of my two shoulders, which is a steer, which is slowing down the sled. So you, it, it's funny, you get to the point where you try skeleton for the first time and you tap walls all the way down. And then you get to the point where you can control the sled and you don't touch a wall all the way down. And you go, yes, clean run. That's a milestone in the, the career of a skeleton slider. But you're still a second and a half or two seconds away from the top people and you didn't bang into a wall. What is different? Well, the elite person is head down, relaxed, being a good shock absorber and knows exactly where to steer and can do that consistently because they're steering based on changes in geometry of the track. So that's the big aspect. You can't measure feel by putting a force platform on someone's shoulders on a sled while they're going down a track. So they're tr they've tried in the past to measure, 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 but it's about body awareness. I hope that wasn't, I feel like that's super complicated and there, there'll be sort of techie nerds who will <laughs> latch on to that. But, uh, and I, and I appreciate, I mean, it's very I interesting. It. Yeah. I hope it's interesting. I don't know if people can relate. Yeah. I know next to nothing about skeleton and that was a pretty cool description for me to realize that you're basically flying blind and you're aware of where you are on the track because of your awareness of your body. And that's incredible. Well, I shouldn't, uh, blind is an exaggeration. Uh, that, well, that was we, my interpretation. So yeah, yeah not to put yeah. words in your mouth. I'm not, I'm not implying that I don't look, but it, it, but technically when I'm in the G force of a corner that's holding my head facing the wall, I'm fine. And then when I, I, time the steer and then as i'm coming out of the corner i i look up and went yep that was perfect and then i go back to that relaxed state hmm. but it's you know feel for i bet you if you ask the skier they talk about feel developing a feel for uh the snow or the ice and that has ramifications for your equipment the size boot how tight it's you know all these other things because it you know, if you feel the snow, if you can't feel the snow, how do you know if you're, you're carving or scraping, right? Yeah. That's probably something that you can, you know, uh, a go-kart or an F1 racer would probably tell you the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, as an athlete and the best of what you did when, when you won gold in Torino, knowing a bit more about you and your philosophy, you don't put winning first at all costs. It's not the most important thing to you about sport, is it? Well, it's, it's, I think it's about 
being the best you can possibly be. And I have examples of friends of elite athletes who didn't win Olympic gold medals that I couldn't have more respect for them. You know, the, and the Simon Whitfield winning a silver in Beijing, that's a good example of someone who didn't win gold, who had previously won gold, but that one was more amazing to me because it was beyond what you could expect. And so we all have that, we are, we're all designed to be certain things. We're, that makes us suited for some things, not suited for others. If, you know, the, the Michael Phelps is, is an example I hear other authors talking about and just all the ways in which he's built like a fish. If you could genetically engineer a human to swim fast, it would look a lot like Michael Phelps, especially for the butterfly in particular. So I could train as much or more with the same environment, with the same coaches, and I'm not designed to do it. Now, does that, you know, do I then, we tend to, let me, let me hit that from a, a different angle. We tend to give credit to the number one person. And my experience in all the years in sport, even at an Olympic level, is that the people most worthy of the respect aren't necessarily the ones who win gold. The ones who win gold are the ones who have the great work ethic, mentally are there, everything else, all the ducks are aligned, and they're suited to do what they do. That's, you can't take that out of the, out of the equation. That doesn't mean they're, they're most worthy of your respect. And I, I think of it in these terms. The person who will never win, has never had the chance to win, but dedicates themselves, puts themselves out there, that's worthy of a lot of respect, perhaps more respect, knowing that you put in the, excuse me, the effort and the time, knowing you will never be number one. That, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. And you write too about, and I love this philosophy that you want your competition to be at their very best as well. And how some of the most memorable experience for athletes is when they know they did their absolute best and they didn't potentially win, but it's because others were also on their absolute best rather than winning by default. Oh, they all disqualified and hey, I'm the winner. Yeah, it's, I feel like I've been very lucky in my career. The, the guy I talk about in the book is a Swiss slider by the name of Gregor Stolle. And Gregor has won, he's won 10 world or Olympic medals. And in the sport of skeleton, they hand out a gold, silver, and bronze once a year at a world championships or every four years at an Olympics. And he's got 10 of those. So for 10, you know, for decades, this guy was one of the greatest. So why do you keep doing it? What inspires you to keep trying? It's, it's not for the trophy. At some point, you have to acknowledge the challenge of it, the competition. And there's just something so freeing to not wish the worst of your competitors. You know what I mean? Like, Gregor Stolle, when I won gold at the world championships, he was the first one there to say that was amazing. So happy for it. He was genuinely happy for me. And imagine the difference that, you know, at the, at the time he was the most 
accomplished slider in the history of the sport. And to have him be the first guy there to say, amazing, congratulations. That, that made my experience so much more wonderful than it would have been, you know? Yeah. Because so much, so much goes into it that's beyond your control. That's another way of looking at it. And it's at, at some level, it becomes about ultimately for any one of us, regardless of your, if you're fighting for gold or if you're fighting to qualify for the team or you're fighting to finish the top 10 at provincials, whatever the level, you're still just trying to be the best version of yourself. Now, if you're, um, you know, Bonnie Blair is an example I use in the book. If you're Bonnie Blair, then the best version of you is Olympic gold. If you're someone else that I have equally uh, respect for is Paul Bohm, who was such a great teammate of mine, who finished fourth in Torino, won his share of World Cup races, but it just didn't happen that day. Could, would I have more respect for him if he was the champ? on that day. No, I, I couldn't think higher of him because, well, it all, that also relates back to the nature of skeleton as being very similar to skiing. I didn't dream of winning a gold medal. I dreamt of winning a medal because a little piece of ice in the wrong spot, a little skid, and you're not in the top 10. It's, it's, it was too much about karma. Like there's luck comes into it. Circumstances come into it. For me, the, the Torino track, required really, really hard steering in three locations. And that was something that I'm really good at. Uh, I'm wider and, you know, at 210, I was much bigger than the average skeleton athlete. Um, so I had a disadvantage in a wind tunnel, but an advantage steering a sled because you steer it by bending it. So I knew I was already really lucky to be where I was and competing on a track that totally suited me. You know, again, there's, there's a parallel in to skiing where you have gliders, tracks, or technical courses that will suit some competitors over the others. It's too much of it comes down to, you know, stuff that's beyond your control. So I'm not going to criticize someone else for something that's beyond their control. I'm not going to, and the, the parallel of that is I felt that, so I'm not going to, you know, uh, pray, you know, look at myself like I'm this god of skeleton because I benefited greatly from things that I can't take credit for. I just see it in a different context, I guess, having, having been on both sides of that, like having gone to the first one for me in Salt Lake City and finishing 10th, you know, that was, I've, I've, I've had the post-Olympic depression and, uh, you know, and then the other side of it where it went better than I could have dreamt I've also had the went worse than I had hoped. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about respect and having respect for not just your teammates, but for all the athletes who are out there competing with you. And I think you gave an uh, example of a, I think it was a, a youth tournament, maybe in volleyball that you were at. And the losing team gave such an ovation to the, the winning team. And when it came time to do the end of game handshake, it was more than just a, yeah, I'm going to shake your hand and walk on. There was amount of time that they spent with each competitor, each, each athlete, and they talked and they shared the experiences. And you remarked about how that was such a special moment for you. And 
and just that respect that through sport was being taught to people and being exemplified. Yeah, part, part of that is the dad in me, but part of it is also, like we were just talking about, being the beneficiary of it from other people. And, and there was already an aspect of the World Cup circuit for me that I didn't love. And that was being away, for home, away from home for weeks on end. And it wasn't, you know, it was half that I was away from where I was comfortable and all the, you know, sleeping in your own bed and being with my wife and this sort of thing. But it was also, it wasn't, you know, you're doing one thing only for weeks at a time with Skeleton. There's a lot of homework. There's a lot of watching video in addition to the training, in addition to the sliding. You know, and you're living in a hotel room. You're, you're, it's not what a lot of people would call fun. Although when you first do it, it's very exciting to be away from home and representing your country. I didn't love that. And my experience could have been horrible if my competitors had a very cutthroat, screw you kind of an attitude. But they didn't. As a team, what, what really set us apart was how we work together. And I think that that's something that it's very hard to appreciate, I think, what a special environment we had. Because there were other teams in the world. The US uh, men's team, when, when I was competing, which, which ended at the, the 2006 Olympics, but leading up to that, the US men's team had three different men's, former men's world champions on that team. Like that's a stacked team and they kind of didn't like each other and they kind of butted heads and they competed. They saw their teammate as the competition. Whereas I had Jeff Payne, who was a two-time world champion. Paul Bohm was a numerous uh, world cup winner. Uh, Kelly Forbes and, and Nathan Sicoria were the fourth person on our team to, at different times and they were both very skilled sliders so the benefit of that and the attitude we had which was we'll work together and you tell me what worked for you and i'll tell you what worked for me is that at any given moment i had three other extremely accomplished people with incredible self-awareness knew exactly what happened in the last run exactly where they were what they did and whether it worked or not or how they might change it and that information came back to me and was almost better than someone else videoing what happened to me because they can tell me about feel and they can tell me about the corner before it, the corner after it, or any other corner in the track. And so we worked, we worked together and it was, it was the pooling of a really stacked, the Canadian team, we had a very, uh, stack team also, and we pooled the resources. And it was, I can't think of, uh, you know, a, a scenario in which that would have or could have worked any better in, for myself and my, and my teammates. I mean, I can tell you firsthand that, that my teammates enjoy, uh, you know, deserve the most credit for my success. And I hope they would say, include me in in the credit for their success also, but it was a very unique situation in that sense. Mm -hmm. How has your experience in sport at all levels informed your life in other areas? Well, 
that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I could go in a couple directions there. I, I've been <laughs> asked many times if I think there's any similarity between the daredevil aspects of firefighting and skeleton. And my answer is always not really. <laughs> it's it's uh, <laughs> none of it. None of it. You know, there's there was never any risk seeking anything involved with either of those. But I think, I think what is the biggest takeaway for me is a sense of if you want to be great at something, I got to the point where I wasn't, you know, there are many different aspects to skeleton. I wasn't the number one starter in the world, but I was pretty good. Um, it more came down to the feel of the ice and negotiating specific corners. How did that happen? Well, I was absolutely obsessed with it and I would dream about it all the time. And I would read books and, and see if it applied and we would talk about it with friends to the extent that the best step I took in my career, the best benefit toward the end of my career was my sister buying me season two of Scrubs, which is <clears throat> a very slapstick <laughs> comedy kind of a TV show. I'd never heard of it before. She bought me season two. I had, you know, I'd never heard of it, let alone seen season one, but it was a distraction and it was a way of me and my teammates all got into it also of not driving ourselves crazy, dreaming and thinking about it every moment of our waking day, but being close to that, that's how you, like we did things that I, I don't think is even on the radar for other people. We would alter our equipment. There was a, like a runner, the, the part of the skeleton that makes contact with the ice is defined as a metal bar of a certain diameter and it has two grooves cut out of it on the back half of the runner. Now, if you do that, that's a legal runner. Now the runner, uh, there are a few more technical you know, specifics that you have to meet beyond that, but you can make the grooves closer together. You can make them further apart. You can make them shallower. All of these kinds of things, we dreamt about that all the time. We experimented all the time. If we weren't thinking about corners and the feel of it, we were thinking about how to best recuperate from a given training plan. You know, it, it's the, the point I made in the book is that it's, it's not about hard work. It's about passion because you can work very hard at a training session, but because I'm passionate and maybe even obsessed with it, I'm going to think of ways that you haven't thought of when you, you can work out harder in the training session than me and go home and forget about it. And I'm still thinking and I'm still working on it and I'm still putting my brain on the sled and in my head doing another 10, 20 runs so that I'm able to relax and I'm able to feel that change in the corner because in my mind, I've gone through the corner hundreds and hundreds of times. So I anticipate exactly where it is and I'm relaxed and I'm aware of it as it happens. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's being obsessed with it because that's what, allows you to think of recuperation, diet, training, altering your equipment, a hundred different things that you might, I'm sure 
Like I look at a cross country ski and I think, is that the widest or the narrowest? If I wanted to go faster and it would depend on the ice temperature or the, the snow conditions, but if I wanted to go faster, would I need a longer ski, a narrower ski? What, what, you know, that's not even touching wax or length of pole, all of those things in my mind, you know, a cross country skier would just go and do it. You know what I mean? And I would be thinking if I had a slightly longer ski, would it distribute my weight better? All of these technical aspects, that's, you know, in terms of allowing you to be relaxed on the sled, because it's a, it's an odd thing in skeleton to be explosive and, you know, psyched up to do the push and then to be a dead body when you're on the sled. That's, that's something that's tricky to prepare for mentally, but the visualization, the dreaming about it, that allows that to happen. And you become a shut-in to do that, to do that well, you know, and I think, I think it's similar with, you know, Wayne Gretzky as a kid would skate in his backyard before school start. He'd have dinner with his skates on so he could go back out before it got dark, almost always by himself. Like that is someone who is absolutely wrapped up in one thing. And that takes you to a level that other people can't conceive of or, or can't achieve because, and where did Wayne Gretzky excel compared to everyone else? Well, he wasn't the fastest guy. He wasn't the strongest guy. He didn't have the hardest shot. It was, he just had an awareness of where everyone was and the percentage of his conscious thought that it took to hold on to a puck and skate at the same time was minuscule. His mind was therefore free to do, you know, strategy. Where's this guy going? Where's my teammate going to be when I set the pass to him? This sort of thing. That's next level. You can't get that at a hockey practice. You can, yeah, maybe you get a, maybe you go in that direction in a hockey practice, but it's hours and hours skating around with the puck looking at other things you know what i mean like it's yeah i feel like i'm rambling on now but no, it's, uh, it's, it's about good. being obsessed frankly. yeah now you've started something called dark horse athletic which is focusing on youth sport what are you aiming or hoping to teach youth through sport and through that organization well it's originally i mean i came back from my last experience as a coach, which was at the Sochi Olympics. And I watched my own kid who was eight at the time. Uh, and he was playing division two hockey. Uh, and I say that so that people understand that there's a whole nother level of crazy beyond that <laughs> division two, a coach wasn't talking to my son, but he was yelling at a kid to do something. And the kid froze and looked at him and he grabbed the kid by the uh, uh, the Jersey and ripped him off the bench onto the, off the ice and onto the bench. And my son who was eight at the time said, man, coach takes this way too seriously. And I thought this is a bizarre situation that it's perfectly clear to an eight year old that a grown up is not thinking about this the right way. <laughs> and then I, and then I thought, you know, if this was, you know, the Olympic team, we would have that guy removed. So how is that so common for kids? And then you get into, that was sort of my, the original impetus for it. And then I thought to myself, uh, 
you know, we'll teach kids. What if every kid learned how to do an A skip? You know, imagine how good technically everyone would be running, whether you're a basketball player, a soccer player, or a runner, if you were taught that at a young age. So there are skills in it that, uh, you know, my kids both played baseball at a, you know, for kids, but at, at the higher level that you could, and no one was ever taught how to run, but that's inherent in the sport of baseball. It's, it's, there's just too much to learn about baseball. They don't teach them how to run. So I thought in Dark Horse, we'll teach kids how to do some fundamental basic stuff, but more than anything, it's to instill a love of the game and doing sport for the reasons that motivate a young person, which is this is something I love to do and I want to get outside and do it more. That's the most important thing. And one of the messages I give kids all the time is if you want to go to the Olympics, the top Olympians that I've ever known, those are the kids who love it, still love it, still passionate about it. And no one ever took the fun out of it for them. Mm -hmm. What sort of impact are you finding that you and your organization is having on kids in sport? Well, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I get a lot of uh, positive feedback, but I, I don't know if those are the people who saw the lunacy of the other way and are happy that someone is aware right. of it and doing it for the love of the game because it's fun. You know, you want your kids to still be doing it when they're 13. That's when most kids are, you know, most kids are done before 12 or 13 because they don't want to, you know, it's, it ceases to be fun. All the research comes back to that. It ceases to be fun. It's too much about the win. Well, the most elite people I've ever met loved it. So whatever you can do to keep it fun is also fueling a, a high performance side of it as well. But neither of those work. If you're doing sport for fun or because you want to achieve, you know, some, what we say is the competitive and use sport, it's either competitive or fun as if competitive by definition wasn't fun or shouldn't be fun. Like they're, those are two opposites, but they're both predicated on fun. And there's really clear research about that you know, right up to um, junior level hockey players. So junior A level, one study that in particular that I can think of, junior level hockey players, why do you still play? It's still fun. Number one answer, it's still fun. Junior level hockey players who have quit. Why did you quit? Number one answer, it's not fun anymore. Okay, so those, the competitive stream and the fun stream, they both have to be fun. And so that's a pretty simple thing. How do you do that? That's not to say that sports shouldn't be competitive because someone, <clears throat> excuse me, someone, one team winning 10 nothing over another team, that doesn't serve either team. And when I was a kid, we played road hockey and we'd adjust the teams to be as even as possible. And we wouldn't keep score or care what the score was until someone had to leave and then it was next goal wins. You know, it was, there was, I feel like a big part of my success was my upbringing, which was get out of the house and we would play sports for hours and not care what the score was until someone with a net had to go. And then the game was going to be over. Then we said, okay, next goal wins. 
It was only about fun. Mm -hmm. In your life now that you're, that you're not competing at an elite level, at any rate, what sort of influence are you seeing in your life that sport is having on your non-sport uh, activities or passions? Like, is there any crossover in your, your ability to prepare for anything, in your mindset, in your self-esteem? What are some of the benefits that you're seeing in your daily life that sports have helped to bring forward? Well, again, I, I, I can't say for sure that one has helped the other, but I see parallels all the time. So uh, writing this book, and I've been writing two books for 10 years, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's one of them. Just sort of putting little pieces together, and, and because of COVID-19 and the extra time I've had, I've been able to really focus on, and I'm close, as you know, I'm close to being done final edits on one of the two books. But it's for me to write well, I'm not a writer. I'm not, you know, a classically trained, I didn't do, you know, high marks on essays in high school, but I would say I'm a reasonably good editor, but it takes me a long time to digest a concept and frame it in my head and write it and then change it and change it and change it. In other words, it's very similar in that it's, it's a passion and it's a, it's an obsession. I'm thinking about it. I'm most effective when I'm thinking about it for hours and hours and hours. It would be the same if I'm making a presentation. I go through it in my head and again and again. So it's a series of concepts. I don't write notes. If I'm speaking to a group, I don't follow notes. I tell a series of stories and I, go over those again and again and again in my head and I have them very set. It relates back to passion and or a more extreme version of passion maybe being obsession. But I, it took, it, it's, it's not A, B, C. It's there are concepts. I told, I told you, I tell anyone who, who has come in contact with my book that it's, it's almost written like sport for dummies. And what I mean by that is it's in very conversational English, but there are complex ideas there. And there are ideas like why we shouldn't yell at our kids to make them perform better. Why, you know, why does that happen again and again and again when that kills the motivation of a young person? Well, it's, it has to do with psychology. It has to do with, you know, various tendencies and us wanting what's best for our kids, just to use one example. But you have to think about it in a much more fundamental way to understand where someone is coming from and how best to motivate a young person, just to stick with that uh, example. So obsession, passion for something is something, you know, I would say, if you want to be great in the world, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a cliche find something you love to do. You'll never work a day in your life. Well, I feel like that has paid dividends in, in my life. I mean, we'll, the book isn't published yet. We'll see if anyone anywhere cares to read it, but um, I'm, it's to the point now where it's almost done. And I, I think I'm proud of it now. And I will be proud of what it is in its final state because of the amount of time I've spent thinking about it and reading it and 
going over it and editing it and so on. Mm-hmm. And in dad mode, what's the most important thing for you as a dad to help teach your kids? Well, it's, it's interesting because I was a late bloomer. And so my, you know, I was competitive in wrestling in high school, but I was small in high school and grew, whereas my kids were not as late bloomers as me and have potential coming out their ears. And it's tough for my wife and I sometimes to look at our kids who don't, they kind of care sometimes. And they, like my youngest cares enough, but not enough to go practice on his own. Like he'll enjoy going to a practice and he'll try hard and this sort of thing at the games and the practices, but not enough to, you know, go out in the backyard and work on it himself for hours and hours. And my oldest son, who I would say is built to skate and has long arms. So he, at a very young age, he was throwing a baseball at a very fast speed, but he is only five foot seven and basically gave up baseball for basketball. And he will never be a great basketball player, but he says, but dad, if I play baseball, I'm an outfielder. I might not touch the ball the whole game. Whereas basketball, you go for it right from the, you know, the, the opening jump, you're running, you're engaged, you're really into it. And I can't argue with that because he's, you know, because he's suited to baseball and not really to basketball is not a good enough reason. And it's been tough. You know, it's, it's hard not to see yourself or want your best for the kids, but that's, that, ha- that one conversation where he said, I love running around playing basketball and I don't care for baseball. I, you know, it was the perfect logical argument for me. And so it was like, yeah, you're right. I can't argue. I can't argue that you have to do what's fun because ultimately the purpose of sport, it's such a small percentage of people who, you know, would go to the Olympics or become a professional at it. So why is he doing it? Like the 99% of everyone else, he's doing it so that hopefully he's active, getting the social benefit, leads a healthier lifestyle because of it. So, of course, as his parent, I want him to be doing what he loves to do. Yeah. Do you find it's easy to project our own dreams onto our kids and expect certain things out of them rather than taking the moment or having that experience that you've had to realize, well, wait a minute, there's more to it than just living up to the potential that I see in a certain area. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, there is sort of the one train of thought, which is you, you, if God gives you a talent, you take advantage of it, but um, it is, it is hard not to, want to project your wants onto someone else. I find as a parent that I see the behaviors, and my wife and I talk about this all the time, we see the behaviors of my kids at any given moment and think that is just so counterproductive or moronic in some case. (laughs) And then if, wait a second, yeah, yeah, like that that just doesn't make any sense to me as a 54-year-old person. Uh, and then I remember what I was like when I was a kid. And I think, oh, yeah, I was kind of a, you know, like, you know, when they said, 
you know, when they were talking about the legalization of marijuana and they, mm-hmm. they said the risk is it really, the male brain doesn't fully mature until about age 24. When I first heard that, I thought, yep, that's right, 24. That's about exactly right based on how much of a knucklehead I was in my life. It, it, so, it started to slow down around age 20. <laughs> so you try, to, you, know, you try and remember that sort of thing. But I must have been a late bloomer in that regard. 24 seems a bit young still for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when can we expect to see the book? If you asked me five months ago, I would have said a month. And then four months ago, I would have said, okay, a month. And we're still a month out. So I'm really hoping. See, in our conversation, I've, I've had two editors. I've had a, a, a professional editor that I hired as a recommendation from an author friend of mine. And I had yourself look at it. And I got the same the same comment on the introduction. The introduction should be more of a teaser. So I'm changing things around a little bit. Uh, we're moving, so I haven't had as much time to dedicate it to it as I, as I would like. I hope, I hope it's, it's going to be less than a month or two because I really love it to come out this spring prior to the Olympics. A few people have mentioned, oh, you've got Olympics coming up. It might be a good time when people are thinking along those lines and I also talk a lot in the book about the, the, the cliche of the mental side of sport and how it's all about mental toughness and, and grit and determination. And those are absolutely valid things, but it's also genetics. It's also about dealing with the pressure, how, you know, we think dealing with the pressure means, oh, I'm so nervous today. I'm not going to perform as well as I, as I could have. Well, that's one way in which dealing with the pressure affects it, but it's also being in the Olympic environment for two weeks prior to your event and being, you know, super wound up, being surrounded by people you may have watched win medals for your country, uh, you know, in previous Olympics. And then you're just 1% off or a 10th of a percent off of what your best is by the time your event comes around. That's, that's the sort of thing that, People don't appreciate. I would, I would love to provide a perspective for people who watch amateur sport once every four years. So the timing there, the sooner the better, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying the sooner the better, but I, at, the same, at the same point, um, I think we're still a few weeks away from having the writing right. <laughs> done, the editing done perfectly. But is, you know, at the same time, and you, you probably can speak to this, I've heard people say at some point you just have to be done with it and set it free on the world. <laughs> and I, have, I appreciate that. There is some truth in that for sure. And are you able to speak of the other book that you have been writing for 10 years? Sure, sure. I, um, my wife and I adopted our sons from Ethiopia. So we are a mixed race family. It's completely unrelated. It has nothing to do with sport. And uh, many years ago now, so we, my youngest just turned 14. So we've had them for about 13 years because he, he we, it was just before his first birthday that we adopted our sons. And for, for many years, it was, um, you know, people saw them in the context of our family, right? They were little kids, you know, adopted. Um, but now as they enter the world as 
young black men, we, a few things have come to light. We've, we've, they have started to see that the world doesn't necessarily treat everybody the same way. Um, years ago, someone shared a study in which they created 4,000 resumes that, that were designed to be what they referred to as statistically identical, meaning they weren't, wasn't the same school, it wasn't exactly the same mark, but they were statistically identical. And then they randomly assigned a black or a white sounding name on them and sent these resumes out throughout Boston, Chicago. It was the first version of that study. And the white sounding names on the same resume were 50% more likely to get a callback. Wow. Like that's, to me, that's pretty heavy stuff. And how that is going to affect my family members, it has weighed on me uh, for, for years now. And I see like the psychology is very relevant and how you, how the, you know, the subconscious and the conscious mind will deal with something like you and I as white men, when we hear the term white privilege, we may react to it a specific way for no reason other than we're white male. And there's been a study uh, that I've come across that shows that white males just hearing the term have a negative physical reaction to the term. And that's, that's understandable because you have uh, white is something you either are or you aren't and privilege is not a compliment. And so you never get, when you use the term white privilege, when you're trying to convince someone that the world does not treat all its citizens the same way, stifles, in many cases, stifles a conversation because people have this negative reaction to the term. And so a big chunk of the book is, how do you have this conversation? How do you address inequality and not elicit this kind of response from people? And the, well, it begs the question, can you talk about that and talk about, you know, racism or inequality and not use the term white privilege? Well, for sure you can. You can convey the same message. So that's kind of one of the aspects of the, of the book. Mm-hmm. Is white privilege in itself a racist term? You know what? I, I tend to look at it differently. For half, like, I would read about white privilege, and I've read, you'd be hard-pressed to, to list a book on the topic that I haven't read. And I will read it, and as a liberal Canadian, you know, however you want to classify me, or as probably more accurately as someone from a mixed race family, someone who cares about my own kids and what, and the world that they're going into, I can read it. And all I take is information. I'm not offended by someone else's opinion, but I I wonder if some, you know, we don't get, you don't have a meaningful, like that's the state of the world right now. And it's, it's exacerbated by, uh, Trump to a large extent, to social media to a, to a large extent, where we facts are less important. We're not, you know, Canada is maybe 10 years, typically Canada is 10 years behind the United States in terms of our political, you know, state. 
the United States right now is about as polarized as you can be. And it's just the left rhetoric and the right rhetoric. And no one's actually having a conversation. I believe emphatically that politics interferes with reason. And that if there was no politics involved relating to, you know, how you govern a country, almost all of us would be on board, you know, how, how you address a particular issue, most like 90% of us could probably agree on how to address a particular inter, uh, issue if politics were not involved. And that just has to do with rhetoric, how, how to have a meaningful conversation. That's what we're missing. You can't, you can't have a meaningful <clears throat> conversation if we're triggering, if we're, you know, as a, liberal if i'm starting a conversation with a conservative with you're a racist or i'm a conservative starting a conversation with a liberal with you're a snowflake well i'm sure there are there are some racists and snowflakes out there but the vast majority of us would meet in the middle somewhere if there wasn't all this garbage going on yeah and that's that's a message i think the world needs to appreciate how you negotiate that and social media is it's tough it's tough like people i respect people i know who are really bright are sharing stuff on facebook all the time that i know just makes the problem worse and makes it more polarized right well you and i have had a, a conversation on taoism and in Taoist philosophy the Tao is one it's the unification it's the way and the more we label the more we distinguish one thing from another, one person from another, well, the more discrimination we create and the more division we create. And so all these different labels, basically, as you talk about the rhetoric and the propaganda, in a large part, <clears throat> they are designed to separate us, to divide us. When really, if we could put all of that aside and we could just connect with one another as beings, the world would be such a better place, a place filled with so much love and far less hatred and division than what we're seeing now. Yeah, I, I think that's the great strength that Canada has. I mean, we're, there's no shortage of rhetoric in Canada, of course. But I think the great strength that we have in terms of our political system is that in my lifetime, uh, more than once in my lifetime, we have sent the Conservative Party packing and we've sent the liberal party almost wipe them off the face of existence which is to say that as a as a people we're not defining ourselves by a political party it's if there's a scandal it's time to move on now someone's going to say oh trudeau's had three scandals okay well that's getting into the you know the specifics of it the fact that as a nation, we can do without one of those. And then 10 years later, we can do without the other one is wonderful because we're not defining ourselves in those terms. We're defining our, ourselves in terms of what should we go for next? What, what would make the most sense? Yeah, the United States is in a, is in a tough spot because the, the idea that I would vote, you know, liberal or conservative because that's how my grandfather voted and, and my father voted and our family has always that's a shame and that would that's going to change anyway you know like the you know in the what was it the 50s i guess the republican the republican in the united states that used to that was the party of uh 
Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, going way back, but in the 50s or 60s, it switched. So they become the, they became the conservative part. And it's all, and all had to do with the, the two parties sort of switched. And it all had to do was for votes, for political, political expediency. So I don't think the parties necessarily define themselves that way. So people shouldn't either. But that's, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go back to your kids and the adoption, if you don't mind. Why did you choose to adopt and why from Ethiopia? These are big decisions to make. And one of my closest friends is adopted from Haiti. And it's had profound implications on his family and primarily wonderful ones. But it's a big decision. Many, many reasons. It's not a simple reason, but there was... Uh, I don't want to say that it was by default, but there were other options that took themselves off the board. Um, if you were going to adopt from Pakistan, you needed to be Hindu. Like there were certain restrictions. Uh, I was being 41 or something at the time. I was too old for a, a number of locations. But, but one of the factors was that our sons were given up for a job for adoption out of a financial necessity that was part of it that <clears throat> that it wasn't that they weren't wanted it wasn't that they weren't loved it wasn't that when they were born they weren't cared for cared for they were um, so that was that was a part of it um, and a lot of as i say a lot of other places took themselves out of the running because I, we didn't meet the criteria or I was too old or we the wrong religion or what, what have you. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from them, your kids? Well, that, that kids do <laughs> crazy things and <laughs> we're also a knucklehead at one point. It, it's, I tell people all the time, like one of the most beautiful moments of my life is coming back from coaching uh, from an air, you know, arriving in an airport and it was late, so our youngest, who would have been, I don't know, five, I'm guessing at the time, probably, le probably less, because Jen just handed him to me, and he was still asleep, and he was sleeping on my shoulder, and he woke up and, you know, said, oh, Papa, you're home, and hugged me and fell back asleep. It's like that, you know, and now he turned 14 yesterday, and, you know, he's 130 pounds, and kids that age would rather hang around with their friends. You know what I mean? Like that, that phase where uh, uh, no one can see this. You can see me. I'm, I'm imagining a, a baby's head on my shoulder. That's, that's a limited time thing. And that goes by so fast. Yeah. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful um, time or experience that I'll, you know, that's what I say to my friends who have young kids, that moment, you know, like your arm tired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when the kid's crying and has a shitty diaper or whatever, it's like that whole thing is going to be over in no time. So just <laughs> enjoy it while it while it lasts. But yeah, it's been terrifying and wonderful, <laughs> <laughs> especially because our youngest is out right now trying to get a learner's permit, and my uh, oldest has you know his first car, and it's. It's, you know, when you're driving around with them, and <laughs> you're in the passenger seat. It's, uh, it is terrifying. At times, it is terrifying in many different ways. But <laughs> I asked, I asked my, my mom has passed away uh, also, but I, I remember saying to her, what 
any advice? She's like, yeah, it's all going to work out. Don't worry about it. And that's mm. like, oh, easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> I was wonderful. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, circle back around to sports for as we close out here. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice to give to young and aspiring athletes? Well, it's, it's a cliche, but it's, uh, and, uh, and it relates to find what you love to do and do what you love to do. And I, and I think as, uh, as parents, it was, it was easier for my parents. I'm giving myself an excuse there. My parents did it right. Let me put it that way by kicking us out of the house. And we were, we didn't just go to the neighbor's house who also had an Xbox. There was no Xbox. And we, all the neighbors sort of felt the same way. And every kid should be outside. And there were lots of kids and we played and explored and built skateboard ramps and hide and seek and all of these, all of these things that are kind of in jeopardy these days because of phones and Xboxes and, um, yeah, that's, that's the advice for parents. Kick your kids out. Uh, for kids, it's find what you love to do and don't let someone else take that fun out of it for you because that's, you know, if your dream, it's funny. My, I have a, a nephew who's 19 now and all growing up, you said, what do you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? Professional hockey player. And then just at some point, hockey wasn't as fun for him anymore. And that sort of thing, it's, there's half of me thinks to myself, what changed? What changed? Because it never changed for me, right? What changed, you know, what took the fun out of it for you? And I don't know what, you know, if, if you're doing it for fun, then it, it is a means to an end in and of itself. And there's value in that. And I'm still, no one ever took the fun out of sport for me. And I'm still mountain bike and I still love paddleboarding. And, you know, at work with, uh, you know, when we're shooting hoops or whatever, whatever it is, it's, there's still great joy in the social aspect of it and the physical aspect of sport. Find what you love to do. Great advice. And your book is filled with insights and advice for people. So I look forward to that coming out. I, again, thank you for the opportunity to have read it before it got released. And as you know, it, it inspired me. I actually ended up reaching out to two past coaches, uh, one who's deceased and the other one, uh, a former university coach, just to check in and say hi. And so right? it, it stirred some things within me and it's definitely a, a wonderful book for anyone who is in sport, coaching sport, enjoy sport, and great life lessons all around. So thank you for writing that. Well, thank you too, because, you know, I, I've, as you know, I've entitled it the Tao of sport. And I, and that was largely a marketing idea that you would read the title and you'd go, oh, this is about the philosophy, the mindset, the thinking aspect of sport. And you, as someone who knows about, uh, the Tao and Taoism, I was very curious to know if, if there would be some aspect of that title that would rub you the wrong way or, or uh, not be aligned with what your sense of Taoism was. And uh, 
I appreciate that you gave me the thumbs up because I, I, I like it as a title that sort of stands out and, and gives immediately a, a concept, a little bit of a hint about what it is all about. So again, thank you for your role. Yeah. Well, part of Taoism is fulfilling our destiny and each to their own when it comes to their destiny. And there is no one particular way and speaking of Tao, there is no one way that everyone has to be or everything has to be done. And so it's in fulfilling our destiny and staying true to ourselves and our, our authenticity, then we are in alignment with Taoism. And so that's something that you certainly have been in your life. And that's those are experiences that you're looking to share with others. So I think it's great that you've taken the time and the years to, to do that. And I'm glad it's nearly ready for others to see awesome awesome thank you so much and before we sign off uh any place where listeners can learn more about you find more about maybe dark horse athletic any websites or other places you want to send people to yeah well dark horse is darkhorseathletic.ca and we do we do online programs uh we're trying to get back out into fields and gymnasiums and that sort of thing but that's a that's a kids program for ages for elementary ages so we say seven to twelve ish um but darkhorseathletic.ca and then my social media stuff is all duff gibson okay and the book when it comes out how will people know about that well i'm going to make sure it's available in uh, an audio audio form and uh as well as amazon kindle uh, Kobo, I think is the other one. So I hope if you look it up, it's obvious where you can find it, depending on the format you're interested in reading it in. And thank you, Duff, for taking the time to interview with me today. Your incredible inspiration. Congratulations on everything in life. And I look forward to continuing dialogue with you. Yeah, me as well. Me as well. Thanks so much, Todd. Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with Duff Gibson. To learn more about Duff and his passion project, check out darkhorseathletic.ca and keep an eye out for the release of his forthcoming book, The Tao of Sports. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats during which I take men on purpose-driven adventures along British Columbia's wild coast. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcy's. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming DotCast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up residence on a tiny archipelago off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off. <laughs>